So one of the things I'm trying to place with your research is it seems like it has a large number of replication themes in it. Because, you know, when I saw that you're you're delivering these published clinical metrics to clinicians so they can test them out in the real world. And then also your work with uh, taking these, you know, high dimensional data sets, reducing them to these, oh, I guess, identifying these low dimensional structures. And then, um, you know, again, trying to infer clinical uh, clinical value from them. Um, it seems like you're hitting on a large number of sort of like replication themes, but it also didn't really fit cleanly into, I guess, these like stereotypical replication research. So I guess my, 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 my question for you, because the conversation I wanted to have is sort of like, where do you see your research actually fitting into the work of, uh, uh, the, of uh, the replication work? Yeah, thanks. So in my, in my own definition, the replication is when you have another study that studies the same effect and it finds the same result, broadly speaking. Um, and I think for that to happen, uh, at a minimum, the original study has to be reproducible. So what I mean by that, if you take exactly the same data, can you repeat the analysis in exactly the same way as the original study and get exactly the same conclusion as the original study. Because if you cannot do that, then it doesn't, like, it's even harder to replicate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, so, a, that's a good distinction to make. Can you go into that a bit more? Yeah, I think yeah. in my research, I feel like at a minimum, uh, to make sure that the replication standards are really high, and it is actually my opinion that it's really, really hard to replicate, reproduce someone's work, even if you don't do a new study, even mm -hmm. if you're like just trying to get the same data or process it exactly the same way. And because our statistical pipelines are increasingly more and more complex, there's so many choices that are being made that if you don't, um, if you don't make exactly the same choices, or if you don't know what those choices are, you wouldn't get exactly the same answers. And how do we document that? How do we make it so that someone else, well, let's say, reads our paper, uses our software, can arrive at the same exact result? Um, and then, so to me, this is reproducibility. Exactly the same data set, exactly the same analysis, being able to get the same result. Now, where the replication, I think, comes into that is, in a way, how robust are our analysis? So, for example, um, I did a lot of work on variable selection using uh, lasso-based methods for high-dimensional problems. Mm -hmm. um, and there are various ways in which you can select the cheaper on of those methods and try to analyze the variable selection performance. And um, I think there is a lot of value in um, those areas of methods using some sampling-based methods or bootstrap-based methods where you purposefully do various perturbations to your data to see what are the patterns or what are the variables that are being selected most consistently. Because this way, I feel like you have a higher chance of actually replicating that later on because this minor perturbation is not going to change the result. So I think, again, to answer your question, there's sort of two stages to the replication. The first stage, I think, a minimal requirement is that the original analysis, data collection, data processing is completely reproducible. And then you can have 
a completely garbage analysis that is <laughs> reproducible, right? So that's not necessarily a guarantee that it's replicable. I think from there to go into the replication, um, you have to build some mechanisms, some robustness checks in your analysis of assessing various things like if you perturb your data a little bit or if you perturb your tuning parameter a little bit, do you still get the same result? Um, and of course, it goes without saying, it's if your original data is biased or garbage, <laughs> whether you mm-hmm. do some sampling or whatever fancy method, it's not going to be replicable. If someone forged the data, you're not going to be able to replicate that. Yeah. Can you, uh, can we just sort of like hit a few of the like points that you made along the way? Cause some of these are interesting with, um, so for example, when you're looking at, uh, variable selection. So the idea is that if you are churning over your data and varying it in certain ways and, you know, bootstrapping, for example, and the variables that you select remain the same, how, wh- where does that sort of fall on the replicability continuum? Cause you know, there's like, did you select the same variables? And also, you know, did those variables still have the same correlational structure um, that they did before? Are they st- is equally predictive? So where, um, is, is it sort of like a continuum uh, on in that regard or what's your call? So to me, doing something like, so sampling a bootstrap and only identifying variables that are consistently selected for those rather than the variables that are the most predictive of the train data. Mm-hmm. Statistically, to me, that's a safeguard of, uh, against overfitting. And again, from statistical perspective, if you overfit, that means your results are not generalizable or much less generalizable mm-hmm. to the new testing data. The whole idea of replication is someone collecting new data, having a new experiment, and seeing whether they can find the same effect. Mm-hmm. So this is where statistically, if you overfit, the theory tells us you would not be expected to replicate that because overfitting, by definition, means it's not generalizable for other data sets. So that's where I feel like some of the statistical techniques that guard you against overfitting also help you with replicability down the line. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just give you like one example, uh, and I'm sure that that's not, um, I've seen some talks where people use it in the regression context too. But like if let's say we take um, variable selection with WASA, right? A very popular method. Um, one way you can do it, and I think it's still the most popular way to do it, is to run cross-validation based on cross-validation, see what's the model that you fit based on that, and report that model. And there's nothing wrong with that, and the cross-validation for selection of tuning parameter already gives you some um, robustness against overfitting. But if you want to go a little bit further, what you can actually do is you can take sub-samples of your data, do cross-validation based on those, fit those models, have a whole range of models mm-hmm. uh, for each of the sub-samples that you take, and then look at what are the variables that are most consistent. And that's um, actually very closely to this idea of stability selection um, in statistics. And so I think fundamentally those types of data perturbation approaches do help you with reproducibility Mm -hmm. in a sense that they try to guard against uh, 
perturbation of the data that can give you a completely different conclusions. Mm-hmm. Um, that, in my mind, is, again, different from reproducibility, where the whole goal is to just make sense of whatever you did. Like, mm-hmm. we're not judging whether it's smart or bad, mm-hmm. but that it could be reproduced and exactly the same answer could be obtained. And I think both of those areas, reproducing the answer exactly, replicating the answer exactly, and making sure that your analysis is not so sensitive that it couldn't generalize to anything new, Mm -hmm. both of those needs to be addressed uh, to make something actually replicable. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. It actually reminds me of uh, back when I was uh, doing a bit more of my uh, Bayesian optimization work on patient vital signs. And so uh, an interesting thing that sort of flies in the face of traditionally what we think of in the machine learning community is like, you know, you have your training, uh, your training set, and then obviously your uh, test set, you're going to get so much, like you're always going to have a decrease in performance in your predictive ability. And um, for my work, what I did was I actually, uh, I tuned a secondary sort of a Gaussian process to help optimize and search for optimal parameters over, um, uh, um, after optimal parameterizations for uh, time series prediction. Um, and so instead of saying, you know, basically I had this one parameter, what I'm saying is basically I have this system that essentially cleans the data. It then optimizes the parameters for predictive accuracy in a more generalized way. And one of the interesting results was that um, the way um, when I had my training set on which I developed these things, just as my uh, test set, um, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be very clear with those because obviously, you know, I think the uh, definition of training or test versus validation set obviously changes between the machine learning community and the clinical informatics community. That's a quick yeah. side note, but um, yes. yeah, well, and I'm well, stepping very carefully. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, one of the interesting things was that um, actually my test set performance was actually better than my training set performance. And because it's essentially the method, you know, it was, it was a method of regularization, but it wasn't so... Um, rigid and ham-fisted that it actually um it actually generalized so well that it just so happened that it found better patients like they found the patients in the test set much easier to regularize against so part of it might have been that i was you know choosing very tough patients to train on and then yeah you get better results so you know that, that definitely does ring true to me as something that is of use um one of the things uh, since you've worked on you know sort of the high dimensional high dimensional data sets and low dimensional uh, structures within them. Um, is there an issue with um, sort of, you can, I, you can choose either replicability or reproducibility when you're essentially trying to extract low dimensional structures from your data? Is oh, it, I, I think there are tons of issues. Yeah. And I think this is actually one of the uh, passion for reproducibility that I have actually comes from my own frustration as a graduate student (laughs) when I would read the papers and um, I would find that they used a data set and they applied their method and they report, you know, the error rates and whatnot. And I would try to do exactly the same thing. Mm -hmm. And I just don't get the same numbers. Mm -hmm. I just don't. And I'm like, is there like some data processing that I'm missing? Uh, Is there like, some slightly different data set? Is there some tuning parameter choice Mm -hmm. that I just don't know about and what I'm doing is different? And it was just like extremely frustrating. 
And I think at the time I made like a vow to myself <laughs> that whenever I try to describe things, which I'm sure I have failed uh, probably more than once, uh, but try to make sure that when my simulations are described, you can like exactly reproduce what's in that. Part of the problem is that there is not a lot of incentive in the profession to actually spend time making it so. Yeah, there's it's the hard work. Yeah, uh, I would actually, I just make the stronger statement that there's nigh on zero incentive to do <laughs> that. Um, and unless you are going to actually turn that into a research field of itself, which, you know, people have been doing. Um, so unless you're literally going to focus on that as your actual statistical research field, I don't see that there's any huge reward. You can make a difference. Individual. You can make a difference. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure if I should share that, but I guess it's more personal. So I would say like, I'm an associate editor for the journal of computational and graphical statistics. And so because it's a computational journal, you know, we expect of course, that there will be software coming with the submissions mm-hmm. and, um, there is pretty large incentive, or at least there's a lot of encouragement for associate editors and for the reviewers to look whether that software is actually there. Um, and we specifically tell for the papers that are close to um, acceptance that we're going to run it. Mm-hmm. And we are going to run it as is. Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't run, <laughs> you have to fix that. Right. So um, I think in that respect, if you care and I care, um, it's been good to be able to in, provide incentive for someone to make the code more usable. Because mm-hmm. ultimately, I think if you have a well-documented code that just runs and is reproducible, that means that more people will use your method, that mm-hmm. it will be more accessible. But it it is a big, it is a time investment. It's a huge time investment to make your code uh, written that well and documented well and run that well, and there's still not enough incentives for that. What do you think? Um, so, when someone is trying to essentially, uh, well, maybe we'll just use your uh, your own work for an example, where um, there's more to just um, uh, reproducing something than just you know making sure other researchers have it available. You know, you've actually made sure that clinicians have your work available, um, which to me feels like that's like just putting it out there in the wild, um, which is, you know, where ideas and metrics can be very rigorously tested. Um, yes. And actually there were some really interesting challenges that came up with that particular work. So I assume you're referring to um, the work on glucose metrics, yes. uh, calculating them from continuous glucose monitors. So um, when we did that, so first of all, we wanted to have a place to calculate them all. Mm-hmm. You know, that was kind of the original motivation. And so you have to go through the literature to first find, you know, the definition of those metrics. And this is where for statisticians, something kind of frustrating has happened. So most of those metrics are in the clinical literature. And some of them like, okay, it's the mean, right? Unambiguous. I know what is the mean. Mm-hmm. But then there will be some where you would have like slight discrepancies in formulas mm-hmm. or they will be described in words that sort of, you know, make sense. But if you start coding and trying to implement them, they're ambiguities. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
In particular, for example, there's this one metric that's called uh, MAGE, or mean amplitude of glycemic excursions. Mm -hmm. So the idea is that you look at the glucose profile, you visually look for the hills, so you look for the peaks in the glucose, which will be like a spike of glucose due to meal. Mm -hmm. And literally what you want is to be able to calculate the height of that spike and then pick up the heights that are large enough in some sense and take the average. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and you know, when I explain it like this to you, it kind of makes sense. You want to see what's the average size of a spike. The larger someone spikes, the worse it is for them. So great. Now, try to do this algorithmically. Yeah. <clears throat> and you can start seeing that there's going to be a lot of issues in really trying to computerize that description and yes. there's actually been study in diabetes literature where they compared a couple of calculators of this metric they give different answers and the study conclusion was oh maybe you shouldn't use this metric mm -hmm. and my conclusion is completely opposite you should just figure out exactly yeah, how the metric is <laughs> yeah so like i'm just like off the top of my head when i was thinking about how to do this so basically i'm gonna i'm gonna use my my wavy hands um but uh, I actually have a pen and paper right here that we can uh, use if necessary. But I was basically thinking, it's like, okay, as it comes and reaches its peak, um, so and then it decreases down. So one, you can figure out the peak um, just, you know, using, you know, a, a derivative. The question is like, well, if it drops a little bit and then comes back up and then drops back down, it's like, is that a second peak exactly. or? Yeah. A lot. And plus, you have to remember that those glucose measurements they're not absolute glucose values, right? Mm -hmm. There is a measurement error. So you can do like this little tiny spike and then up, or you can do two peaks. Do you combine them together? Mm -hmm. Do you not? So actually, um, since we're on this topic, a little bit of advertising, but mm -hmm. I have an amazing an undergraduate student, Nathaniel, who figured out a new algorithm where you do some pre-smoothing, mm -hmm. which allows you to kind of uh, identify those peaks less ambiguously. Yeah. And um, another undergraduate student, Nan, he actually did manual calculations because, you know, human, we're very good when you give us like a picture. Should this be a real peak? Should this not be really big? Human eye is really good at pattern recognition. Absolutely, yes. And we did this because that is the gold standard. That is the original definition, manual calculation. And it's just, it's really frustrating as a statistician that all of these calculators that i see either they never actually compared to the manual calculation mm -hmm. or they did a comparison but the data is not available nor they manual calculation so i cannot produce it yeah so no to our nice yeah yeah, it actually reminds me of, I think this was uh, the Christmas break of 2016, where I went through and manually annotated artifacts um, across several dozen. So basically, it was two days per patient, and I did about 40 patients. Um, and just like, and I actually, I developed a, uh, a script that would bring up, um, that actually bring up the plot in the UI and let me click around and uh, manually identify these things. And it seems like what your student did is absolutely the perfect thing to do. One, it's like you have a problem and you just sweat it out. Like the the, the solution yeah. to this problem is you just work um, and, you know, go Most and. problems have that solution. <laughs> yeah. But like, you know, you can imagine that, say, say you wanted to use the, um, so some type of like averaging system to uh, remove the noise from the peaks. 
Well, That's the question is like, what we're doing, we're yeah. doing averaging. Yeah, and then also the question is like, okay, well, what parameters do you use for that smoothing algorithm? Because now you're trying to process it through a smoothing algorithm. It's like, well, that's an empirical question as well. So how do we deal with that? It's like, well, let's manually annotate which what are the peaks, and then we can basically tune the rest of the algorithm to identify the peaks. Upon identifying the peaks, then you can proceed to the next step of actually averaging across these, uh, you know, the, these peak events. Um, and so it's. It's one of those, again, it gets that thing that we've talked about before where um, these vital sign problems, you can call them problems, challenges, what you will. It's an infinitely deep technical issue because there's always something that you can do to tune something or to make it better. And, you know, you pass an algorithm through another algorithm and things like that. So, um, yeah, I uh, the, 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 those two students you mentioned, mentioned are probably going to have zero problem getting into a very good doctoral program if they are interested. Oh, um, this because... is the amazing thing. One of them is a freshman. Jesus. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, that, that, no, that, that is, that is, oh man. It's like, <laughs> is it, is, is he available? Cause I can, <laughs> um, yeah, no. Um, I hope he likes to work with me for a little bit longer. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, cause you can, you can imagine that like, uh, the value we'll, we'll, we'll go off topic for a second. Cause I think this is important. Um, you know, the value of, uh, someone basically finding something that they're good at and working on it through the duration of their undergraduate program. Um, I yeah. think that that's just a really amazing experience and um, that's super impressive. Well, and I think in this case, you know, we had a really, it really helps when you have a very real problem. Mm -hmm. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. It's like there was, okay, there is this original metric definition, which essentially is provided in words, like I sort of gave it to you. Mm -hmm. And then there have been different computer programs created to try to calculate it. And out of at least four or five, only one of them actually said in the paper that they tried to compare against manual calculations. One said they look visually and the result made sense, did the right thing. Mm -hmm. One said they did a lot of manual calculations to cross-compare. None of those are available for the community. And the others just did the algorithm. Mm -hmm. And so you have like reproducibility, replication, accuracy. And then, you know, someone does a comparison of them and says, okay, they have a poor agreement, not surprisingly. Mm -hmm. But those two agree. So this suggests that that must be the right one, which again, I have an issue with. Because two people can do the same thing wrongly and agree. <laughs> that doesn't mm -hmm. necessarily mean that that's the truth. Uh, and so I think there was a lot of like, okay, we need to have a gold standard. We need to make sure that when we establish it, because manual calculations, as you know, are prone to error. They could be mm -hmm. very subjective. Yeah. So the only way I feel like you can actually claim that is if you actually provide the numbers and the data to other researchers. So someone can critique your manual calculation. Mm -hmm. but at least have a discussion on that. Mm -hmm. And I think if you don't have that, like how can you even hope to have something replicable or reproducible? Yeah, no, that that, that is that that is a good point. Um and again, th this this I think this is sort of the interesting thing because uh, when we're talking about um reproducibility and replicability that um there are a lot of messy elements like i mean i think the, the more traditional conversation about uh reproducibility is very interesting in its own right 
Um, cause obviously, you know, we're going to be covering that in a, uh, in a number of interviews, but, um, yeah, just the, the number of like specific elements that make things messy on this issue, I think it is very interesting. And of course there was the issue of incentives, like how rigorously, how severely are you going to test your methods? Um, are you going to, um, and even like one, one issue is like, there's probably plenty of researchers who are more than happy to really test the bounds of their own methods and really rigorously figure out where things fall apart. But the challenge is that by doing that effectively, you're opening yourself up to attack from the yeah. reviewer community. So what is good science is actually in many ways, um, discouraged because essentially if you're publishing what's left. It's like, unless it can fit into a future research section of your paper, then don't bring up any weaknesses of your work. Um, I, th I think that's unfortunate as well. No, I, I completely agree that in general, um, we're doing better in some ways, but I think not good enough in terms of incentives. Like based on my personal experience, and maybe it's just me, but for me, actually cleaning the data and the code and making repository before the paper submission mm -hmm. is one of the most uh, time-intensive tasks. Absolutely, yeah. Because, like, you have to clean through all of, you know, like, pursue, you've done all the, you know, dead loops <laughs> that you took, figure out what was the clean final version and how you actually arrived at it. And make it so that someone else can, um, in my case, clone your GitHub repository, mm -hmm. run it, and get the same result on their machine. Mm -hmm. um, and that extra time means that you're going to delay your paper submission, you're going to sit longer on a paper, and you're going to sit longer on it at the expense of another paper that you could have written. Mm -hmm. And so it's a lot of investment without necessarily having a lot of immediate return yeah and honestly i mean in whatever future return there is can is a little bit more than the abstract and it might not actually be a return so like you know there is an element here where there's a significant opportunity cost to doing good science as opposed to mediocre publishable science and um that opportunity cost unfortunately is inflicted on generally the most scientifically acute so to say people so as in the people who are most rigorous about their science the burden of rigorous science is placed most heavily on them um unless like you're just a master of the game and you have you know thousands of you know postdocs and things like that to work on your research but you know it, there, there's an issue there where i think um that's underappreciated where it's not only that is this a burden but it's a burden placed precisely on the people who have the highest opportunity cost um, for scientific endeavors. Um, that's yeah. probably an idea that needs to be flushed out a bit, but um, I'm not... But I mean, I'm, you yeah. people shape that. And mm -hmm. I mean, you can talk about how there should be an institutional change, but ultimately we are the people that shape that. So if, as a reviewer, when you review papers, if you as a reviewer do not... Uh, put critique on the software, on mm -hmm. the reproducibility, instead put the critique oh, on your method doesn't beat the other methods all the time. Yeah. That's what's shaping that ultimately. 
Yeah, battle, battle of the I call it battle of the algorithm, and like they are, um, I think that they are my least favorite part of my favorite aspect of research. So, like, obviously, I love uh, medical informatics and medical machine learning, but the battle of the algorithms type papers, I think, should probably are. I'll just be aggressive and say our, our field is pretty much better off without them. Like, um, m- most of them aren't actually making any real scientific progress, so it's not like they're actually discovering anything really. Um, especially because when you're so busy, when these uh, these papers, just to sort of give my own highly opinionated bit on them, you know, it's like um, they are only focused on presenting uh, recently published methods. So it's essentially you're only selecting based on whether methods are recently published, not if they're applicable to, for example, the mechanistic aspects of biology, um, any like underlying good, like underlying correlational structures of the data. It's usually they're relegated to hyper recent, um, algorithms and, um, there, so there's no explanation put into why this algorithm actually matches to the data very well. Um, furthermore, there's nothing telling you like, you know, why we would choose this algorithm over another. And then they also become so fixated on just the comparison that there's no scientific discovery element. So it's not saying, ah, this algorithm discovered this novel structure and we can tell something about this clinically or tell something about this biologically. It's, you know, algorithm, new algorithm beats old algorithm, future work, conclusions <laughs> done. And um, yeah. I, yeah. And you know, I'm a little bit more optimistic about it. Like, I, okay. <laughs> I do think there is a value and and I actually like especially that in the machine learning community, at least there is UCI machine learning repository, right? Mm-hmm. So at least in that community, when someone tells you they took this data set, you can access exactly the same data set. Mm-hmm. And many people can access that data set and you all can have your method or your algorithm compared on that. From scientific perspective, I agree that just running your algorithm on 10 data sets and saying which one classifies best does not give you any value to the scientific problem that you may be interested in. But I do feel that there is a place for that type of research and there is a value in at least knowing across like a large benchmarks what's the relative performance. Mm -hmm. What I think, in my opinion, the issue is that somehow we value that much more (laughs) than a simpler method with a deeper understanding of the problem. Mm-hmm. And corresponding inside. Yeah. And I think that's kind of where the issue is. Yeah. It's not that the other one is not having any value, it's mm-hmm. of how much value we placed on that. Yeah. Well, I think there's the I think there's a difference. Like obviously no one's gonna be throwing out uh benchmark uh comparator papers um because you know they're just too valuable. Um they get a lot done. And what would be nice is if there are in fact more benchmark data sets by which people could do these types of things. Um, especially because as algorithms become a bit more narrow focused um you know they might actually just be optimal in certain settings and so by having more benchmark data sets you can actually say this data set or this algorithm is sort of keyed into this setting um i guess my uh critique of the battle of the algorithms when it comes to applied work because i i don't i'm not sure if benchmarks really count as applied or they might, they might not. People can send me their hate mail for saying that. <laughs> but, you know, like the idea is like, <clears throat> it's not applied to what might be a real problem. And when, when you are applying it to a particular problem, I think personally, I only like to judge it in the context of that problem. Um, 
I mean, I know that's not a profound statement, but you know, it's still no, the idea. I, I, I think it has a value though, because different fields sometimes have focus on different problems. Mm-hmm. And even though mathematically the problems may sound the same way, like both have a matrix sample size of this, and mm-hmm. I don't know this many variables, uh, the fact that they're coming from different domains inherently potentially change quite a bit what the characteristics are and also what the person may want the scientist to get out of this data. So to give you an example, in my work, um, I actually did a lot of classification methods mm-hmm. based on extensions on discriminant analysis. And the typical criticism that I always get is, why don't you do uh, random forests or kernel SVMs or something like that? Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you go to some imaging data or text data, I bet those work much better because mm-hmm. they have nonlinear structures. Um, they tend to have larger sample size, not as many features. On data coming from genetics, where I have been applying my methods, um, in a couple of papers, I actually did comparison. And it's not better. Sometimes it's actually even worse. Mm-hmm. And what's most importantly, I don't know how to interpret it. I cannot easily extract what are potential biological pathways that may be of interest or what are the variables that, again, I feel much more confident through the subsampling of bootstrapping mm-hmm. that are actually important. And yes, I may not get sometimes even as good of a classification, but I get better what I would argue is a better insight and interpretability of what actually matters. And if you are, I don't know, a recommender system and you're just trying to predict which movies someone liked, I don't know, maybe you really don't care what goes under mm-hmm. the hood and what makes someone prefer this movie over the other. You really just want to predict. But I think in medicine and biology, we really want to kind of understand what's happening under the hood. Uh, And that's where, you know, there are different value systems, essentially. Mm Yeah, no, I mean, well, there's there's uh, plenty of evidence to support what you said, for example, in, you know, biology. Um, the fact is we don't just have, um, you know, correlation-based models of our, um, of the phenomena that we're interested in. Uh, we also, you know, have like mechanistic models of them. So, you know, something completely different from what I consider, you know, the more, most traditional statistical or machine learning models, where we actually say like, let's define some basic believable rules about these mechanisms and deduce what what type of system arrives from that. Um, simple things being, for example, like interactions between cells or the um, the elasticity of um, you know a blood vessel as blood is pumped through it, and you know that's that's the new model. Um, and so, yeah, there, there's plenty of um, in biology. There are many ways that people are attacking, trying to get at what's under the hood, um, yes. especially because that's where like our future is. Like we can't build much farther if we don't figure out better what's under the hood and how these things interact. Yeah, and I think there is a value. I mean, the, the whole value of research that we explore and we try different things, there is a lot of value in, uh, you know, kernel-based methods or uh, forest-based methods. There's a lot of work that has been um, done and this continues to be done in trying to make them more interpretable. So by no means... Uh, say that simpler models this work better. 
But I think the value of research and in general scientific endeavors is that we acknowledge the value of pursuit and the mm-hmm. value of exploration. And I think sometimes we're so fixated on the productivity metrics that it's detrimental to the pursuit, it's detrimental to the replication, it's detrimental to reproducibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, it's funny that you're mentioning metrics because in the back of my head, I was thinking, oh, the one other critique that I want to have is like, most of these performance metrics can be gamed in some way. Um, okay. as, yeah, especially like if you know, um, it, it's actually, here's, here's a basic irony that the people who tend to just want to be publishing and um, will essentially would be happiest to game metrics, they never learn their data sets well enough to really figure out how to game those metrics. Um, whereas like, you know, if you, if you, um, if you're trying to do good, solid research and you spend time critiquing methods or metrics and thinking like, well, is this metric actually a true representation of what the sort of clinical outcome would be? Um, I found the one where um, this was in a data set that I've looked at extensively, um, but it's basically on early warning. And one of the things that I noticed is that effectively the metric was gameable if you're looking at sort of these rates of false positive. Um, and so like the metric was game, it was like super duper gameable. The only thing you had to do is essentially just keep upping your prediction rate. Um, and you, you would do, you would, you would do better. And, um, so I took that example. I took a few other examples They're They're a bit weaker. Um, but like I collated them into this story about, it's like, here are like five clinical metrics, um, that were, that are super gameable. Like they're common and they're gameable. And here's precisely how you would game them. Um, to basically make anything work. And it's like, um, no one liked that. No one liked that at all. Like, um, trying, trying to get that, uh, that published was, um, well, it was, it was not a success story, but uh, (laughs) actually now that I was actually thinking that now, um, so I'm not sure if, um, I told you this, but, um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know that, um, you know, I'm working on the editorial section. So I was added to the editorial board of the Journal of Data Science. And one of the things I want to do for our editorial section is I'm going to take that and I'm going to publish that. And you're um, going to put that. Yeah, yeah, it's like, so yeah, there, there's a bit of corruption because obviously I'm well, publishing in my I own editorial section, but I think it's useful. Like, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, in general, I always have an issue if it's just like numeric metrics. I think we like to have a number so mm-hmm. we can just compare two numbers and mm-hmm. you know it's a direct comparison it's easy one number is larger than the other mm-hmm. and we're done but that's not how life works and i mean we keep trying to do it with sats and with GREs and with gpas mm-hmm. um, and it's just like but that's not really predictive of performance or success mm-hmm. and science reduced to a number is not a good science mm-hmm. we keep I keep trying to do that. I don't know why. Yeah, um, it actually, um, what was I? That, that reminded me of something, but now, now I'm forgetting it. <laughs> um, yeah, sorry, maybe I tried to reduce my thought to a number and it just disappeared. Um, <laughs> no, but, I mean, oh yeah, it's like we like the sort of the idea of like the comparability aspect. Um, so yeah. making no attempt to reduce something to a number. Oh yeah, I remember where I was going to go. Making no attempt to reduce something to a number obviously leads to its own sort of yes. pathological like, areas. No numbers but, at all, that's, that's a whole other... Yeah, but you know. it's like the saddle point isn't too... It isn't like a razor-thin saddle point on this. It's like you don't go crazy trying to reduce things to numbers. You don't also just totally ignore 
the numbers. So like, obviously, you know, the, the P value statement on from, was it the, some psychological journal where they're totally not going to look at those things anymore. Um, but at the same time, like, so like there's one side and at the same time you can realize as well, there are plenty of hypothesis tests that you could perform. Like you could game a hypothesis test quite easily. It's like choose, uh, you have, imagine you have, um, you know, uh, bimodal or trimodal data. It's like, well, let me just try to do a T test and I can probably manage to game some significant outcome on that. Things like that where it's just the actual hypothesis and the model is not actually representative of the underlying. Well, and that actually brings back our original discussion of replicability. A mm-hmm. lot of the issues of replicability also arise as a result of gaming that happens mm-hmm. either consciously or subconsciously. Um, if you conduct a study with the determination that this is what you're going to find, then you're going to work hard to find it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's that's created a lot of issues, unfortunately. And I think that's why it's, um, that's why a lot of the analysis steps is really important, I think, to reproduce. Because if someone tells you that, I don't know, they had these five subjects that they removed for the reasons that don't seem very appealing, then mm-hmm. at least you can have some evidence or some in- inkling that maybe something was gamed here. Mm-hmm. Or at least you can have, you know, an objective discussion. Is this biasing the results? Is this not biasing the results? But if it's just, you know, not reported, nowhere to be found, then you have no clue at all. Mm-hmm. And we all do, I'm sure, like I, I remove subjects sometimes for various reasons. And I think this is where to make sure that you're not subconsciously biasing your results. You should at least report it mm-hmm. and make it so clear that someone else can hopefully find it. Yeah. Actually, I remember that uh, I had an appendix section once. Um, I, I, apparently, this is just going to turn into a like a, a monologue on my grievances. But, uh, you know, um, like I, I just like my appendix sections are like long because basically when you're trying to do this thing, we're saying, OK, here's how we select we have a population of patients on a ward and we're selecting from these patients uh, for this reason, usually because of some form of clinical acuity or another sort of confounding event where they would just not be, they, they would not be appropriate for this type of analysis. And so you remove those um, and they say, okay, now for each of these patients, I have this data cleaning method that runs through it. And then um, at each time point, then I fit the model going this way. And then I have this algorithm monitoring over the top of it. And so, um, like I put some of those big things in there uh, once, and um, unfortunately, like I don't know why, because you know it's not like there should be any real limit to an appendix section. But somebody wanted to me to replace that once with like another a subsequent battle of the algorithms issue. So it's like, why did you compare this to SVMs? And that like it's like, and well, they wanted you to take that out. Yeah, like as as if as if time or sorry, as if space was a problem in this appendix of an electronic journal. Yeah, no, it it did not make oh, any sense. Doesn't. Yeah, and it's it's one of those things. It's like, well, um, I could now have just wasted several months of my time, or I can just comply. And if people are really interested, they could check out my doctoral work or some of my other subsequent work where I describe these things in a bit more that detail. That is so incredibly sad. <clears throat> I've never I, I, heard of that happen, and yep. that is super sad. I think it's like one of those things where it's like aiming for 
parsimony where just like it's like if we make this it's a we, we got to keep this thing tight it's like no no this is the appendix like this is where well, you don't keep things no yeah. i mean i i completely agree that uh i mean i always tell it to my own students that within the main manuscript you kind of want to keep the narrative of the story mm -hmm. but you want absolutely to make sure that you have enough simulation details that someone can use it and enough details on data processing mm -hmm. but if those become cumbersome or too large you can sort of do the highlights in the main manuscript but put those details in the supplement mm -hmm. because you don't want another student like i mean i always think of myself in grad school coming to that paper and like swearing to the authors so they can mm -hmm. figure out how to reproduce the simulation study you know and but i've never yeah, I've never heard someone trying to take it out, asking explicitly to take out from supplement. Yeah, I mean, it, it had all. It also has the element where, as you know, like a lot of journals, they basically have like the two strikes rule, where you have essentially, um, you can basically have one major edit, one minor edit, and then you must publish. So effectively, it doesn't actually allow for very much time to like have discourse or strategies in like, well, I'd like to leave this in. Can I just do that? Like there, there's there's no time where the only thing when the only thing you can do is either rebut and send in a new publication. So is it send in the the revised draft? So you can either basically there's no time to actually have a conversation with the person and say, is this actually what you want or is this sufficient? Is this actually what you want or is this sufficient? And you sort of have this like one shot chance of resolving this issue, or alternatively, the person could just say too many major corrections reject. And so yeah. it's, there's, there's a weird, it's a weird contraption to send your, your work through where like, there's no time just to have a direct conversation. But I think this is want. another problem on the system because fundamentally we want papers to be published so much mm -hmm. that when we're in the process of revisions and reviewers ask us something that we don't even necessarily agree with. Mm -hmm. There is like this push in some sense to do whatever it is to make them happy. Yeah. Because we want the paper to be in. And well, I'm yeah. not saying like you wouldn't say no if it was like a completely like <laughs> I've never seen a request that was, you know, completely off. Like do something I've, that is wrong. You know? but, I've seen plenty of review requests, you know, uh, more on the side of when I am one of the reviewers and I'm reading some of the other reviewer things. Uh, reviewer comments like and thinking direct is like no that's gonna make the paper so much worse which is like like just off-topic stuff where it feels like they're just wanting to say something but um i think that part of this would be if uh journal editors you know the head honcho the person in charge actually just took a stronger hand in some of these things and said like this is not a reasonable request from the reviewer this is a better paper as it is but you know obviously there's not much incentive to do that because you're trying to just you're trying to not annoy your reviewers because obviously they're just donating their time um, or they're donating no, their editors, time. They're donating their time. Most yeah. of the time, the editors don't get anything. Right. Well, they get they get credit for being an editor as opposed yeah, to being a nameless reviewer. Tell me what do you do with that? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> yeah. Um, probably about the same uh, thing. Yeah, but... Um, obviously, they do it for the science and mm -hmm. the... Uh, I mean, that, that, that's why we're here. We write papers for the science. We review papers for the science. I mean, that's what we do it for. But I do want to kind of come back to this point because I think ultimately 
it's not about what we're expecting from the editors or department heads. I mean, that's a conversation that could happen. But I think the biggest change that we can do is individually, when we are reviewing paper, are we paying attention to how reproducible and replicable potentially the study is based on the methodology are we asking for another comparison to another algorithm? And there's nothing wrong about asking for another comparison for another algorithm. But if we are not individually in making this claim that that's important, then it will never become important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's yeah, I think that's fair. And especially like, um, I guess one other thing is that I think there needs to be a validation or at least some. Uh, support for why a particular algorithm warrants comparison. So, you know, it can't just be that the age of the algorithm, you know, the age of the algorithm's original publication date cannot be the actual, like, metric by which we decide which comparators enter. It it should be something where you have to understand, like, here's the nature of the data. Here is the sort of dynamics that this algorithm is adept to pick up and model and make use of exploit, if you will, and like it, th- that has to be that has to be in long, along the lines of reasoning, not just like can you slap the newest model on this data. And um, but I guess there is a tiny silver lining here, uh, and the silver lining is that um, I mean I think that's the favorite request. Um, I'm gilding myself as a reviewer. I definitely asked for additional algorithms for comparison. Mm-hmm. Uh, if the additional algorithms do not have a nice software mm-hmm. that is easy to reproduce and run, I'm not going to compare with it. Mm-hmm. And um, as a editor and a reviewer, when the authors provided me such response, and that was actually the case, I think that's totally valid. Mm-hmm. So in a way, if you don't have software for your author, then I think you have to accept that someone may not be able to compare with it, nor should they be putting the responsibility on implementing the algorithm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, yeah, I, I think we've we've both had similar uh, issues where, especially in cl- a lot of clinical informatics research where you try to reproduce. I'm not sure if it's especially there. It's just the only one I know uh, better I, I than I think most. it's more there than in the machine learning because, again, in machine learning studies, a lot of times it's like, okay, we took this data set from UCI, and at least there is a very nice simplicity in it. I know exactly what is the data set. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of times, you know, for various reasons, some studies are more real and the data is protected. I kind of understand that too. But um, there are other times, um, like, for example, there is data publicly available from the Atlas project. Mm-hmm. However, the data typically as publicly available is processed in various ways. Mm-hmm. And in my experience, that is typically not described adequately. Mm-hmm. What do you think about, um, so what about cases where effectively a company has um, some proprietary data set, um, but obviously the algorithm itself isn't proprietary and they're just trying to show the world that this was a thing that worked? Um, and, you know, there's many reasons why a company might want to publish or people within a company might want to publish, including just some things that are just interesting. Uh, what's your, what do you, what, what's your sort of like general gut feeling 
like off the top of your head about that? Is it just my personal opinionated take on it is that mm-hmm. they have to provide at least one other data set that people can access. Okay. And so is that for um so is that for if they're trying to show that an algorithm performs well in a certain scenario, or alternatively for the sort of publication where they're just trying to show that this problem is solvable in some way? Um, I think the second is a little bit of less defined. Yeah. But uh, the first one, definitely. If first you one seems a method, that's a no-brainer. Mm-hmm. And like, I actually did this thing for one of my papers where I created a simulated data set Mm-hmm. with the characteristics that were very similar to the real. Mm-hmm. And then at least anyone interested can apply it to the simulated data set that looks similar to real, but not exactly real. So I think that's also a viable option. Yeah, that's a uh, good idea. But if you don't have anything, you just have one proprietary data set and that's it. I mm-hmm. hate papers like that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm sure there are exceptions, um, but I tend to have inherent distrust in the results mm-hmm. when there is absolutely no way for me to anyhow touch it or try it or validate it. So when you say distrust in the results, do you mean that you distrust that even the result exists uh, because there's no way to verify it or simply that it doesn't seem like this result would actually be particularly useful in other scenarios because there's too much that's ambiguous? Um, like it could be both, I guess, but you know. I think I distrust a little bit the rigor of the analysis be- mm-hmm. just because I cannot verify it or reproduce it. So essentially, I have to inherently trust that whatever is written and said about the data is actually true. Mm-hmm. And I feel like if we have to put that kind of trust in a lot of different companies, that's a dangerous path to go. So I do not want to do that kind of trust or be in a position where I have to exercise that kind of trust. Okay. Um, And I know this is probably a very orthodox or unorthodox opinion, depending on how you feel. But Mm -hmm. personally, I feel there should be uh, either simulated data or another data or um, maybe some kind of summary measures partial data available to give more transparency to what actually has been done. Yeah, I think that's I think that seems like a pretty fair assessment. Um it, it's certainly reasonable that if you are not able to provide your current data, that at the very least you could sort of either one provide them with a set of uh for example, begin with a set of summary statistics so it helps elucidate on the whole what these what the data is doing. Um and similarly, that if you provided a some type of simulation example so that people can actually see the algorithm in action and what type what type of mechanics you think are most pertinent, um, obviously it's not going to be the same as showing that it works on a real life data set, which has so many types of artifacts and anomalies in it that right. it's hard to replicate those. But yeah, so I mean, I think that's I think that seems like if you're going to not show um, if you're not going to provide the data that you have, that what you've suggested seems to be a reasonable um, alternative to sort of giving a first order approximation of it. Yeah, and I mean, there's also now a lot of research um, that's done on um, trying to identify the data and even corrupt the data so it mm-hmm. could be shared. And I think those are also perfectly acceptable things. Mm-hmm. 
But like for me, otherwise, and I mean, I'm distilling it down quite a bit and simplifying it, but essentially it, it boils down to, we have this amazing data that we're not going to show you mm-hmm. on this amazing result that you cannot reproduce or verify in any shape or form except mm-hmm. taking our words for it. And we want to publish a paper based on that. And I just <laughs> have mm-hmm. an issue with that. I guess uh, I guess it depends for me. Um, I, I guess I'm a little bit less uh, bothered by that, just in the sense that, um, well, one, I guess my baseline is pretty low, where I don't generally trust any published paper. Like <laughs> this is on the words, like any basically trust anything. Right? Yeah. Well, it's it. it's well because it's just like uh, well, just from where I'm from, where I go, you know, we're in a field which has you know so many pilots, so many pilot studies, so many pilot algorithms that don't go anywhere in the future. And like, that's fine. People need to figure those things out. Um, and you need to try a lot of things to make some things work. Um, but I guess the reason that I read papers is out of interest for ideas for my own work. Um, so as long as someone is saying something where it's like, they describe reasonably what the actual sort of action mechanism between their algorithm and the data was, that's interesting enough to me that I'm willing to be like, yeah, I'm glad they saw that. And I don't care if it's in, on archive or it's on, uh, you know, IEEE or wherever. Those sort of things, maybe I'm just reading them more out of interest. Um, but at the same time, I realize that the barrier for which I'm holding these papers is maybe a little bit lower than most people where I'm just trying to see, will this stir up some ideas that I personally might enjoy or might make, be able to make use of versus will this be replicated? Will this be reused? Well, and I think there's, first of all, like, if there's another data set that is used on the same methods paper, then I don't think there is a huge issue that one of the data is private and you don't mm-hmm. share it. Then as we have discussed, you can have a simulated data or perturbed data in some way that you can share instead. Mm-hmm. And I think there is also a third option. If the data is sensitive, um, sometimes it's like sensitive now, but not like in two or three years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think if... I think that is also acceptable because that means like eventually, I mean, if it's 20 years, maybe not so much, but <laughs> if it's like two or three years, okay, right now you want, you collect this data, you really want to choose on this data, you don't want to share it to everyone because it took a lot of work to collect, mm-hmm. but eventually you will release it, but right now people can already benefit from you know the initial studies that you have done. And I think that is also an acceptable point mm-hmm. because there is a point of release in the not so distant future where at least theoretically someone go back and see was that actually done validly or invalidly. Mm-hmm. But I mean otherwise I feel like there is absolutely no accountability for what you present. Mm-hmm. I think that's where I personally have an issue with. <laughs> Yeah, and I'll be honest, like I've reviewed some papers that were clearly fraudulent, um, as in like where it was literally, they absolutely 100% just made up the results because there's a misalignment between the algorithms that they're using and the metrics um, that they're actually presenting at the end, um, where it either they completely miswrote something, in which case that's on them too. But, you know, again, it was, there was a complete logical disjunction i'm not sure what it would be just like disconnect between the algorithm that they're describing the metric that should be generating and the metric that they described and the values of those metrics at the time and so um this was 
it was actually, I, I, I might've stopped reviewing for that journal after they sent me that one, because like this one should not have even made it to the reviewers. Um, uh, but yeah, no, there's, um, yeah, there's, but it's, I, I, I have no doubt it, it really seemed like it was the, the authors were just basically thinking, oh, they're not going to actually look at this too hard and we're going to get a publication. And nope, I was there and they made the mistake. Like this, this one unfortunately was like super in my, my wheelhouse. So it was like right where I knew exactly what to check for, because when someone does something in this area, I'm interested to know. So maybe they had the mistake of having a curious reviewer who's like, oh, maybe I can learn something from this. But um, yeah, no, I, 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 without a doubt, I know, I know as a fact that there is fraudulent research out there. And I think that, um, I'm sure there is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But yeah, you know, the the solutions that you described are certainly ways that would relegate against doing that. Um, But yeah, maybe maybe that's a good good place to stop unless you you, you've brought us some silver linings. Do you you have one more silver lining before we go? One silver lining. Well, I think maybe I should summarize the silver lining because Mm -hmm. it all sounds kind of depressing. But I think ultimately, if you have if you spend time making a research reproducible, it increases the chance that others are going to actually use it mm-hmm. uh, and choose your algorithm for comparison that are going to give you benefits in the long term, even if it doesn't give you benefits in the short term. And personally, a lot of times my students don't believe me when I first tell them that. But if you make your job, your research reproducible, you're not saving your time right now, but you're saving you tons of time later on. Whenever you do revisions, whenever you do extensions to the previous methods, whenever you analyze the same data set and slightly tweak the processing steps because the goal is different, you are essentially paying yourself forward, but making sure your analysis is reproducible, not to mention um, more replicable, have a higher chance of being replicable in the future, just doing plain good science. Cool. Oh, Arena, as always, I, I enjoy our conversations. Um, I respect your research integrity and um, immensely, and I really respect the output of the research that you're doing. So I'm always, always I always enjoy our conversations, and I look forward to the next one um, when time allows. So thanks again. Sounds good. Thank you for the opportunity. Hey guys, it's Glenn. Thanks for your time today. I hope you liked today's episode. If you did, please consider smashing that like button. It's the single simplest, fastest way to make sure that YouTube shows this video to more people. If you really want to go crazy, consider subscribing or going to our website and joining the mail list. If you want to go totally crazy beyond that, forward this to a friend or colleague who you think might enjoy this too. We're a small channel and every bit helps. Our next episode will be coming out next week. So in the meantime, feel free to look around the channel and see other videos that might be of interest. As a quick disclaimer, the views expressed in the show do not represent anything other than the people saying those words, views, etc. like that. It doesn't mean anything about their employers or their employers' views or some thing about their employers or their neighbor's cat or anyone else not saying the words. And in fact, given that people tend to change their views when they're thoughtful enough, it might not even represent the views of the speaker by the time you're hearing the episode. So definitely come back and see if they've changed their views at a later date. They also don't represent the views of our sponsors. Thank you to our sponsors. You can check them out on our website.